This is Local Color, distributed by Your Public Studios, a podcast dedicated to the artists, entrepreneurs, and social innovators using their talents to make Baltimore and the DMV a better place. I'm your host, Jason V, and on the show today, Kirk Shannon Butts, curation and public art manager of the Baltimore Office of Promotion and Arts. In the previous episode, Kirk spoke about his life in Baltimore, working at Condé Nast in New York, and life as an indie filmmaker in Paris, France. In part two of his interview, Kirk discusses his return to Baltimore, advice for artists looking to please others with their art, recent projects, and exciting new projects on the horizon. All right, all right, everybody. No long introduction this time around. This is part two of my interview with curator, mentor, and art uncle Kirk Shannon Butts. If you're confused, it's because you didn't listen to part one. And yes, shame on you. Go listen to it now. Picking up from part one, Kirk talks about ending his time away from home and moving back to Baltimore. And a quick editor's note before we jump in this episode was recorded before the exhibition uh, for Kim Rice at Top of the World in downtown Baltimore. So, Kirk. Kirk's going to mention it here, but please go check it out. It's up through uh, the middle of November, I believe. I went for the opening because I'm amazing. It's awesome. Let's get to the episode. What year specifically did you move back to Baltimore, and um, and why did you move back to Baltimore? I came back in uh, 15, and I, at that time, I thought I was going to buy a, 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 a abandoned house here in Baltimore and make my studio and make these films. And um, that was my goal, but I met Stephen Towns. And um, ironically, I met Jermaine, who was now his husband, and Jermaine's one of my best friends, Jermaine Bell. I met Jermaine when I was screening Blueprint in Atlanta at a Pride Festival. Oh. And, um, right, and he was like, I'm from Baltimore, and I like, I'm kind of from Baltimore. And then when I came here, he was like my only friend here. <laughs> he, they were dropping me off one night and Stephen was talking about he had a show, upcoming show. And I said, oh, I can, I can do the PR for your show. And he was like, PR? No one knows who I am. No one, no one cares. And I said, well, that's why you do PR. And I yeah, there you go. For you. <laughs> right. And before then, I was, and I guess at the same time, I was working for... Um, Anthony Cordetti, Cordetti Glass Gallery in Woodbury, and I was doing uh, marketing and curating his glass in the shop. What I learned from him, which is very valuable and, and helped me with my sort of mantra of no, star, no starving artists, because people, for some reason, buy into the, the thing of starving artists. They think that's cool. It's not cool. No one should be starving, including artists, particularly artists, because artists really make this world beautiful at no cost, right? For you, for the public. So um, right. they should starve. They should not starve. And working with Anthony Cordetti, you can own a whole business as he does. And he has a wife and kids and several houses. And he's very successful. And he does it all from his art. So I knew that was possible. So when I work with artists, I know that you can sustain, maintain, and operate uh, um, practice and, and be successful. And what I do find as a curator in stepping into that space and, 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 and really exercising my initial degree, which is um, arts management and marketing, is that 
when I go into do these studio visits and um, the artists, they all talk about having to practice, but they don't really treat their practice as a business. They have a mm. practice making art, which is their product. But if you're not marketing your product, if you're not selling your product, and I don't mean them the crass way, I mean it in, 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 a, in, in a modern way. You know, in the like, no starving artists way. Right, in a no starving artist way. You have to be the one that decides that you're not gonna starve. That doesn't mean you have to be on Instagram every day. You definitely wanna be much more calculating and swift and um, organized and professional about it. But um, just like he can live off of selling glass, you can live off of selling sculptures and paintings and, and, and clothing, you know, that's also, you know, having that experience working with designers. Today, people know who Tom Brown is. I don't know if you know who he is, but I knew Tom Brown when no one knew who he was. And I would, you know, um, put him in the magazine and get his clothes for fashion shoots. And so I know that someone can go from nothing. And, mm -hmm. you know, he, I think he recently sold his company for half a billion dollars. And I'm telling you, I knew him when he couldn't sell it for $50. <laughs> you know, it, but but he was. I knew he was talented. I knew he was talented. I knew he was doing something innovative, and um, and even in the beginning, people were like, "Kirk, what is this?" <laughs> and I was like, "You're gonna see," and it yeah. did. It blew up, and now every everyone knows Tom Brown. Michelle Obama wore him, and even that's when I think he really. And he started. What was so interesting about that? He wasn't even doing women's clothes. He started out doing men's clothes, and. And she, I think that was the second inaugural walk and she had his coat on and it just blew him up, right? And, uh, and, and by then, of course, in the fashion world, everyone knew who he was, but mm -hmm. normal, normal people in America, across America didn't know, but, you know, she helped shape that for him. As somebody that's worked in fashion, uh, working at Condé Nast and working in media, does art mean different things in like a government or, um, you know, I, I don't want to say municipal, but I, I can't really find the words that I'm I like municipal. I use that word. Okay. So then does art mean different things in like a, a municipal capacity versus like working in media and, 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 you know, like working in the art world itself, or does it all just boil down to the same thing at the end of the day? Absolutely not. Everything is diversified. Everything has the diversity. Everything has multiple meanings. Um, definitely for me, working in the municipal space was in the, the, the municipal place, the governmental space, the public space has been eye-opening. Because if you can't place your art, if I can't curate for the public, then I should not be doing it. And I think that's what art institutions are finding now that, mm -hmm. you know, even, um, you know, a show like hip hop at that, the, um, the culture show at BMA, they mm -hmm. know that they have to now do shows that cater to everyone in the, the, the city that you're in. And even now use artists that are from the community, if you will, it just happens that Baltimore has great artists. I mean, they deserve to be there, but they also deserve to be there in their own right. Like Stephen Towns, when he got to do a solo show there, 
Um, it's, for me, I think that's much more impactful, but of course, any way you can get in, you wanna be there. And, and, and hopefully that will go away where black artists, gay and lesbian artists and, and women artists can be in those spaces simply because they're the best, simply because of their art, not because you're packaged in a show that's really benefiting um, the establishment. One, 200 years of not showing women, not collecting women, not showing black artists, not even allowing black people in the building. Um, you know, when I started curating, which was only in, in 2015, mm-hmm. um, less than 2% of curators in America at in, the art institutions, less than 2% were African-American, less. Yeah. So I know I'm working on a show right now with an artist who, um, Kim Rice, and her show is going to open up in September. And I call it uh, her work. She's working in whiteness. She, done, she did some research and found out that her, her maternal family owned slaves. Oh. And so she did some research. After that, she was shocked. And then she did the re- other side of the family, her father's, and found out they did too. And I remember being in her studio listening to it because it was very fascinating to me as a, a black person, you know, this, you know, this white woman mm-hmm. taking this ter- taking this journey, right? And um, and willing to share it with me, you know, as a curator, and um, we're trying to. Um, this is before I, you know, we said yes to a show, but um, I knew in that moment that this was something I wanted to share because it would be authentic from her. I get a lot of shows and artists talking about the American experience and even talking about their blackness in connection to whiteness. My blackness, my black journey, my black life is separate from white. So I want a white artist to tell their white story and I'm cool with that, right? And so, you know, she went on and on and she kind of told me at, at the end of the, um, the, her thing is that she had been told by white curators that they didn't want to show that work or they didn't feel comfortable with that work. And, um, and I was telling her, well, that's why it's important to have black curators because I, I'm comfortable with that work and I think it needs to be shown and I'm going to show it. So we're going to figure out what that looks like, but that's your experience. That's your journey. Um, I can't authentic. <laughs> I can't authentically do a show with that history because even though I could go through history and probably find a white relative that may have owned slave, but I'm still who I am today. Right. right? So um, I don't get those privileges, and so um, it's important to have black curators and. And, and on staff, not for hire and in consulting, um, because we see how that works out. We just had, I don't know if you read, maybe two weeks ago, there was an ex, there was an ex, there is an exhibition that, that is for black people about a safe space. Did you see the story? Uh, no, no. Tell so me more about it. It was a, two or three weeks ago, um, there was this situation for this um, exhibition the exhibition is for black people to have a safe space. That's like the um, installation, the space is about that. But a white woman came into the space 
and said she, the, the, the black woman in the space resting and minding her business was threatening to her and aggressive to her. They put, the guards came and put the black woman out of the museum. What? Look it up. Oh my God. Mm, that that's, that's, I mean, that's just nothing but frustrating to be honest. Like that, that's- Right. But that's because the, these art institutions are not being authentic. They haven't risen to a place where their staff, all of the people that work in that building understand the dynamics of America. So um, they're still operating on white privilege. Even if you're a black guard putting the black person out, you're, you're protecting whiteness. And so sure. that's why a show like this is important to me that someone can authenticity, a white person with authenticity and, and the legacy can say, this is my journey, this is what happened. And I wanna see that. And that informs me of the, the next question that I was gonna ask, but I feel like I already have the answer. So just to kind of uh, go through it, I was gonna ask what behind the scenes work does a curator need to do to have the type of successes that you've had with you know, Stephen Towns, Ernest Shaw, Monica Ikegu, who all, by the way, have been previous guests on the podcast. Um, but it seems Good. like, <laughs> but it seems like the, the, the like element that you need or that behind the work, behind the scenes work that you really need is just being unafraid to have that level of authenticity and saying, kind of like what you were saying before, Kirk, what is this? Who is this Tom Brown guy? It doesn't matter that you don't know, you just have to feel it. And if you can feel that authenticity and be comfortable with it, even in those uncomfortable moments, that's what makes for a good exhibition. That's what makes for a good art that is thought provoking and gets people to think and explore feelings that they maybe have like thought or felt, but are just afraid to in a public setting for fear of, you know, judgment or, or, or retribution. Would you agree with that? Well, I definitely believe, well, let me just say, I don't put art on the walls because it's pretty. I put art on the wall because it has meaning. It's going to expand someone's mind. It's going to um, elevate your experience on this planet. Um, and, 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 and also it's going to benefit the artists who created it. It's going to allow them to teach. It's going to allow them to get their narrative across. It's going to allow um, the community that it's in to um, see itself. You know, often the work is, uh, particularly here in Baltimore, there's an element of Baltimore coming through people's art. And, and when I curate, I ask them, you know, the artists, I have, a, I have an artist question, exhibition questionnaire that I ask all the artists I work with. And one of the questions is about Baltimore. And the work doesn't have to, but it's always some, something there because our artists are based in Baltimore or from Baltimore. And so um, it's important that the, the art is beyond art. It's beyond creativity. It's, it's, telling, a, a it's telling a story. It's a, it has history. It is the probably art in any form. It's the greatest learning tool. And in America, we really need, need that to complement all these other narratives that are going on and also school systems that can't do it all and parents that can't do it all. So art is such an easy way to learn and, and it's also, also an easy way to um, create um, 
what like um, occupation ideas for children. I create show. I create shows that I want kids to come see on their own. Kids to come with their parents. I want parents to come. I want other artists to come. Everyone. That's important to me, and I feel like I got that from being in the public space, in the government place, in the municipal place, because I came in under Mayor Pugh, and uh, the 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 her vision was to make Baltimore City Hall an open city hall, so mm -hmm. everyone was welcome. And I remember doing my first tour, which I did not want to do, and I remember there were the, these kids, you know, they were 13 to 18, and I would always start out telling them that this is your city hall. And I would tell them, I work for you. You pay taxes, not maybe like your parents, but you buy things that pay taxes. This, my salary, this building, the art that's hanging on the wall is here because of that. It's because of you. And you could see the kids, they, are, they looked at the place totally different. You would see their heads turning like, what? I own this building. <laughs> right? They would totally calm down and, and act right because they own the building. It's their building. No one's telling them that, right? So, yeah. um, you know, that's, a, that's an approach that, that comes from being a Black curator. You know, any curator can do it, but they haven't done that for 200 years. But I do because that's how I want my the, the spaces that I curate to be inhabited by people who I am uplifting. Because the artists, they're not making pretty pictures for no reason. They're, even someone like Monica, who people think those pictures are just fun and cute. If, I remember going to, I met Monica when she was still at MICA. I think she was a sophomore at MICA. Mm -hmm. And I went over to see her. And I just, I did a lot of listening because I didn't, she was so young that I didn't want to say anything, uh, you know, like, you know what's happening with you is not normal, right? <laughs> Curator's coming to see you while you're a sophomore. You're in New York winning awards. Like, you have, a, I think she even had an agent. That's not normal because she was still in school. It would be different if she was out of school and pursuing it. She wasn't. She was a student and people were seeing her work. And I saw it too. And I went and, uh, but I remember her telling me about her process and the, who were the, the actors and the, the, or the actors, the, the subjects in her work were her brothers and her friends. And she talked about them and, and she talked about being, you know, from her parents are from Nigeria and all this stuff, yeah. um, all these elements to her, like you were finding out about me. That's what I do for them. I allow them to be all of that, all of it. I want all of it. I don't want it. The editing comes later. For now, I want you to, I need all of it. Let me, as a curator, edit it out later. I don't want you to create things because you think that's what I want. I want everything, right? And that's what happened with, I don't know if you saw DJ's Derek Smith's show last year. He came to, <laughs> he came to drop off the show and I was kind of baffled, like, like what is this? You know, where, where, because I knew him, I mean, I had worked with him before. And, um, and, and so he was playing it safe and he was trying to give me a, the show that I wanted. It's not about me. You know, I have to teach him that lesson. You're the artist. It has to always be about you. 
It doesn't matter if it's me, it doesn't matter if it's the Gosian, it doesn't matter if it's the Rubels, it doesn't matter who it is. You always have to exhibit and, and paint and create what is in you, you know. And so I told him to roll up everything. He packed up everything, took it home. He had showed me some things on his phone. I was like, this is what I want. This is good. This is, this is where you should be at. So I said, do you, it, you need to bring this back in, in two weeks. Can you do it? And he's like, yeah, I can do it. He took it home. He brought it back. And people were like, I stayed downstairs because I wanted him to be able to talk about his work to the public that day. And mm-hmm. someone came downstairs and they were like, people are crying. So I was like, okay, I need to go up now because the work was just so, the work was so powerful. And, uh, yeah. and then, you know, I have Johns Hopkins kids, they come in every semester and that was the room they stayed in and they wanted to talk to him and, and, uh, and, and, you know, he was young, he's like their age, so they can have this adult conversation, you know, a young adult conversation about everything that's going on. So it was wonderful. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, I continue my conversation with Kirk Shannon Butts. I'm Jason V. This is Local Color. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Jason V. This is Local Color, and before the break, my guest Kirk Shannon Butts was just dropping some knowledge and game for artists who are looking to please everybody with their art. That's not what Kirk wants as a curator. As we continue our conversation, Kirk drops a few more gems before talking about other things going on in his life, other projects. Let's jump right into it. If you've studied your art history, most of the artists who are the greatest are the ones who were doing something that was not typical you know you know people look at impressionists i was in new york over the weekend and um, i discovered a new impressionist paint, painter <laughs> over the weekend but you know at that we look at it today and think oh it's beautiful and wonderful at the time people thought it was trash yeah like they didn't they didn't look at our impressional painting and say oh this is beautiful let me have one in my house if you're a rich person they thought what are they doing this is this is a blob you know, there was no, they couldn't see the form in it. You know, we, because now our critics and curators have, a, have shaped the narrative around it. So you see the forms and the pixelation and the dots and, and the, the way they created their imagery. But at the time, no way. Um, Andy Warhol, who's one of my favorite artists, they thought he was absolutely out of his mind for many reasons. The way he looked, <laughs> not much less his talent. And not only did he have talent, he had a vision. He never stopped. He was having princes and princes and, and the most rich, richest people in the world buy a portrait from him for $50,000. $50,000 in, in the 70s and 80s was like outrageous. Yeah. And it was, from a pol- it, was, it was from a Polaroid. He would take a Polaroid. So basically you, get, you paid him $50,000 for him to take a Polaroid of you because you didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> from that Polaroid, right. and and he he was so clever, and he would keep he would make one for them, and he would keep the rest, <laughs> which are now worth millions and millions of dollars, right? So he was so innovative, so ahead of his time. Um, just uh, uh, you know, people throw the word genius around so often, but he was just so insightful and so committed to what he was doing. I mean, he created a, his own magazine so he could promote himself, his the crazy films that he did. Um, you know, he was doing it all. 
I, again, I feel like you're, you're always answering questions before I even get an opportunity to ask them. Uh, but I still want to ask this one. Um, recently, BOPA was awarded a very generous grant from the National Endowment uh, for the Arts. Um, and, you, and you've talked about, I think, from your, oh, oh yes, first, congratulations. Uh, but Thank you. you, of course, um, you've talked about, from your perspective, your mission and how you will support community-focused art exhibitions. But how will that grant from like the BOPA administrative standpoint uh, support community-focused art exhibitions? Is it just you know, funding artists to produce their work? How, how will that grant be allocated? If that's a question you can answer. Yes. So um, going back into my marketing um, um, expertise, one of the things is to help place our local, our Baltimore-based artists on the national stage. So one of the things that I've already done was um, place a national ad in Artillery Magazine. So though the shows and the names of artists are published in this publication, that is a big deal. We have to get our artists on the national stage. And, um, you know, I've done that with uh, many of the artists I work with, but if we could do it large scale, so this time we have nine artists at one time that we can put on there at one time by placing this ad. So yeah. the money will help facilitate that. Um, also, you know, um, at Bromo, there's a small, I forget what the word is because it gets all technical, but we can support artists um, um, more, more than we have in the past to, to um, install their shows. And um, also obviously to do outreach in terms of um, um, marketing the show to the public in more innovative ways. So it helps in, in so many ways, but mostly it really does help the entire city because this is the first National Endowment for the Art Award that is specifically for curating and exhibitions. And um, on this level, I mean, maybe the BMA or the Walters, maybe, I don't know, I don't even, but I know for, for the smaller organizations, this is the first and it's important because it places all of the artists that I, I've worked with in the past and the ones that I want to work with in the in the future that I've met and this allows the outside world to see Baltimore as a major hub or or um, emerging I think emerging is best because people like emerging things because they could come here and think they discovered it whatever we just want mm -hmm. our artists in the scene here to be acknowledged and so being able to help do that by having national and in, in, in facilitating our artists in any way we can is important. You talked about it a little bit, but what's coming up next for you? So um, this is breaking news. <laughs> so um, I've been um, um, in discussions with the Brown, Brandt Foundation. Are you familiar with the Brandt Foundation? Is that the... Like the William T. Brandt Foundation is, or no Brandt. This is Brandt in their uh, New York Foundation. He was a oh, banker, okay. and he has this amazing art collection, and he has um, Keith Herring's in his collection. And so I've been in discussions about doing a Keith Herring exhibition here in Baltimore. And to my knowledge, it will be the first solo Keith Herring exhibition. So I've been researching that and 
having conversations with them. And so I'm really excited about that because I think, you know, as an African-American curator and seeing all that's going on in these institutions, I really would like to uh, select someone who I, you know, I love his work. And, um, and he was really, as I do even more research, because I've watched documentaries and listened to his family, I really want someone who really appreciated um, black culture and was connected to it, you know, and, and, and how he lived and his partner was African American. And, um, and I just read uh, yesterday, uh, uh, he first encountered, he's from Kutztown, so it's some small town in Pennsylvania, but he had uh, encountered Black people, I think he was like 15, he had a summer job. And his family talked about how he would come home from his job and he was just so excited because he had met something new. He was exposed to something new. Like he, he didn't know any black people and that changed his whole life. You know, he left, <laughs> he left Pennsylvania to go to New York because they, the, the people that he, particularly the, the black people specifically just allowed him to be a whole new person, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and then he went to New York and he saw graffiti. And also what I like is that he created his own. He was not copying black people. He wasn't, he, he again, original. He was original, he was authentic. So the, those images that you see of him will last just like a Picasso, just like a Rothko, just like a Warhol. A thousand years from now, you'll come back and everyone will be able to say, oh, that's a Keith Haring, because no one else will ever be able to do it. So I'm really looking forward to, to put that together through the lens of a Black man, right? And again, um, because I feel like I go to these exhibitions at these major institutions where they're about Black artists, and they just never feel right. They never feel complete. They never feel authentic. They just feel like, oh, we need Black people in, in our museum. It just never feels thought out. It just—it always disconnected to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, you feel like it's just like checking this box, or as uh, this other artist I had interviewed years ago, uh, Daryl Anderson, or I think I was the one who was like had told the term to him. But basically, it was just cosmetic diversity. Just, <laughs> oh, I like that. It's there, but like when you look behind the surface, you're like, oh, it's 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 still white. So. Like, <laughs> Cool, but not really. So uh, I think that that'll be an awesome uh, exhibition because as you were talking about it, like I was looking it up, I'm like, Keith Haring. And then I saw his artwork. I was like, I know exactly who that is. Right, right. Everyone knows him, even if you don't know him. Right. right. He, he, and he was a he was an innovator at the time because he he wanted, I think, and we and sometimes you have to tell people's narratives, which I can do as a filmmaker. I have that skill. You have to tell people stories, even if they're alive. Sometimes you have to tell their story um, authentically. But when, uh, certainly, when they pass away, you know, I think, you know, he had a pop, sh a pop shop before anyone was doing pop ups and all this. This was in the late '80s, early '90s, because he died in '90 or '91. So this is way back in the day before there was even a term called "let's have a pop up." So I think he was he he did that because he wanted his work accessible to everyone and, and probably to black people, to the, in New York, Puerto Rican people, like the black and brown people that he was most close to, 
you know, he lived with Basquiat. That was, they were cl very close friends. And uh, another said his partner was um, African American. I think he might have been Afro Latino. So, yeah. Um, so to take your art and and make it mass like that when he was, he was a he was a big deal at that time. He didn't have to do anything, and he certainly didn't have to make his work available for anyone to buy it. You know, he had things for five dollars. You know, and, and and if you bought that stuff back then and bought a ton of it today, it's probably worth. It may not be worth millions unless you bought a ton of it, but it's now so valuable that you could have bought a Keith Haring like keychain that's no longer available. And now he's having a resurgence. Um, there's a show that just opened to my chagrin, um, the broad, because I've been working on this for like two years and they probably been working on that for four years. But anyway, but he just had a solo show open in California at the broad museum. So, um, I don't you know. know well, that's get... that, that's all the way over on the West Coast. You're doing it for the East Coast, man. Right, right. And it'll be different work. I don't. I, I I've seen the pieces, and I, mm -hmm. you know, I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna blacken. I'm gonna blacken it. <laughs> well, good. Uh, I'm sure um, it's gonna be amazing, and uh, everybody will be excited to be a part of it. What makes Baltimore such a unique city that's worth and worthy of national attention? Baltimore is a it's a city that's full of so much um, opposites, right? When I left here, you know, as a kid, and it's so even me, my mother's from New Jersey and my father's from Baltimore. So there's always been this North and South thing happening. But when I came back to Baltimore as, a, as an adult in 2015 to live here, oh my goodness, it felt like I was in Louisiana somewhere because it was never, <laughs> It was never the South to me. I never thought of it South because when people talked about the South, they were going to Virginia or North Carolina or, or Georgia or somewhere. But this time as an adult, I realized that it is the South. So it has these dualities with this urban, um, urban versus Southern, um, Northern versus Southern because it's on the line. It's the northernmost Southern state and that is what makes it this really dynamic and intriguing place. But it also fuels all of the, the, the discord in poverty and, and crime, um, like any uh, major city. But the history here is very um, a proponent. Why, too? Because if you know your history, you, Annapolis was a major slave port. So you have this um, place where, and they made their way to Baltimore, whether they were running away or they were fleet free slaves. So um, you, you have this community of blacks and whites actually living together. But yet, of course, the whites are always the most considered. And that relationship has been going on for what? 500 years now and it's still I see it every day in the reaction when I'm here walking down the street when I'm on a bus when I'm in a when I'm at a restaurant whatever I do that same culture of the society of Baltimore of Maryland of the south is here in Baltimore and I don't think people who who are here in in um haven't really gotten out I don't think they understand how deep it is and, 
and how um, how it affects everything they do, but it affects all the the people around us, the the power, the people with the power, how they just walk in that space. And um, I like to believe that through curating and being a public servant for the very first time, that I'm doing things to change that through art and through the artists that are here. And I know. I know to your to the question, I know that the artists want to change it. And that's all artists. I work with all artists. I work with um, black artists, gay artists, white artists, Asian artists, Latin acts, Latin artists. Um, so I know somewhere in their art, in their creativity is to create this better world, you know, through through their art. And and the, and, and my job is to put it on the walls. Like I said, I don't put pretty on the walls. I put change on the wall. So when you look at this piece of art or it, 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 it changes you, you know, and it changes the city. Every show, I know every single show that I've done in a city changes the city. You know, it's like, um, you know, it's like a, it's like a vitamin pill or something. It makes you better. It makes you stronger. It gives you more energy. It really does, and, and, and that's a collaboration between the city, the people who come to see it, the artists who created it, the, the agencies like BOPA who provide places to show art, and curators, like not just me, but there are other curators, you know, Thomas, James, um, um, Rhea Combs at Bars is amazing, um, um, and others, uh, I can't mention all of them, but there are other curators that are doing great things. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not in a vacuum. Right, exactly. Well, that is all that I have for you. Um, Herc Shannon Butts, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, interview you for your first podcast interview. <laughs> so um, I wanna congratulate you. And um, uh, I think what you're doing is amazing. I think if you're just of the artists I work with doing something innovative and, you know, we've had many conversations and I never thought I'd be on your show, but I've been lately getting lots of requests. And so I wanted you to be the first before I went off to do other people. So um, I'm so happy that you're actually still around doing it. And I wish you much success. And um, I know that you've done things with BOPA and, and we're happy for your success and um it was it was painless so thank you <laughs> of course <laughs> of course no problem thank you so much this concludes my series with kirk shannon butts can't wait for that keith herring exhibition thanks again kirk for allowing me to interview you for your first podcast and always know you are loved by charm city Thanks for listening to today's episode of Local Color. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jason V. The podcast is distributed by Your Public Studios. New episodes of Local Color will be released the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Learn more about Local Color at wypr.org.